<laughs> Are you opposed to large institutional companies buying up single-family homes for rental purposes? I'm not opposed to. I think it's a good thesis. Generally, in a in a inventory-deprived, low-rise market, I think it's a great strategy. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. So, Steve, we had a little bit of a, a little bit of a break. Three consecutive cancellations. I don't I know. know. I don't know why. You'd think people would be just clamoring to the get on this is, show. The market's you know? buzzing, Ben. The market's buzzing, Ben. Yeah, people are busy. You people know? are buying, are they're selling, they're trading, and they don't have time to talk too much shop. Yeah, but it's uh, uh, it's interesting. I had a, a number of clients, you know, mention in emails. I you know I listen to the show. I really enjoy it. I sent a, a market email out to uh, bullpen clients uh, the other day and uh, included the link to the last podcast and. You know, 200 people clicked on it within wow. uh, a couple hours. So, wow. uh, so we're pretty pretty excited. Still, that, uh, still amazed people listen to us yeah, banter. You know, you know. I mean, actually, I had, such... a, I had an email yesterday from a guy in Ottawa, reached out to me, and asked about one of our new funds and um, wanted to meet. And I said, uh, "How did you come across? You know, I guess my not only my name, but just the idea of this new fund." And he mentioned on the podcast, nice. ULI Ottawa. Okay, Kevin McMahon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a good guy. Good guy. You know, former research guy, now developer. Okay. Inspired by this podcast. To, inspired uh, to, to by the podcast. Speaking of things that are inspiring, is the work done by our sponsor, Nizo Studios. The award-winning Nizo Studios is the premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural, visualization, and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit NizoStudios.com and ask about LiveSite. Their virtual sales center software is the media darling, taking the building industry's sales process by storm. LiveSite. Well, speaking of someone that's into sales... Let me hear it. We have a guest. Yes, we do have a guest today, Ben, and I'm extremely excited to welcome Mr. Steve Kaiser to the show. He's a longtime friend, a business partner, and not to mention a frequent advisor on many topics, not only to me, but a number of people in my organization. He's also a senior vice president with Colliers International. Today's guest is a key leader in the redevelopment and intensification vertical, specializing right here in the downtown Toronto market. Acting on behalf of an increasing number of private and corporate estate owners, Steve works to maximize the value of their properties while bring certainty and focused diligence to the process. His team's key skill set is assessing and establishing highest and best use for any given asset while being able to guide property owners through the redevelopment process to align value expectations with the demanding structures of their buyer base. Steve graduated from the University of Guelph with a Bachelor of Commerce, was a varsity athlete, no big deal, and met his beautiful wife, Rebecca, at Trapper's Alley, who he and her recently launched a gin-based sonic drink sold in the LCBO. Folks, find me someone who doesn't like this man, and I'll have found you a liar. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Kaiser. 
Welcome to the show, brother. Such an honor to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. No problem. We jump right into it. I was actually uh, talking to someone else this week, Ben, before we get into the Steve Kaiser show, who told me that they don't like the preamble. They're like, why don't you guys just get right into the discussion about real estate? Why do you, why do you and Ben always have to tell jokes? You guys aren't even funny. <laughs> and I was like, and I, and I said to him, I said, well, actually, the Jays are killing it. Me and Ben both love the Jays. I was hoping that we could maybe talk Jays for like a minute before we started the podcast. Like, don't even That's think cool. about it. Wow. <laughs> Some people just want just want that uh, that good content, like, like right like off the bat. Land values, price per foot, lease rates. That's it. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> yes, sir. So first, so. we want to start off because I'm a Guelph guy. You have to t- let us know what your favorite bar in Guelph is. That's where we're going to start off. <laughs> wow. Well, I did meet my wife at Trapper's Alley. Nice. Um, there we go. Nice. It was not dollar beer night because that would have been too messy. Um, it was a regular night, so I have to say Trapper's Alley. The pal. Alice was too clubby, you yeah. know. Trapper's Alley, you, you know, the lights were kind of on, and you could see people. They had so that. that uh, I don't know if you remember. They had that. Uh, it's not a punching bag, but it's just the little the punching bag ball that drops down, and you hit it as hard as you can. And yeah. Steve is a regular there. I used to go to the bar, and all the <laughs> girls would be just like huddling around Steve, hitting this like punching bag ball, and he would always be getting hundred out of hundred, and just be like flaunting themselves all over him. And I was nice. like, oh, and he played on the football team. Yeah, and I was a couple Slot years back. younger. I saw that. Slot back. Yeah. I was a couple years younger, and he was dating this like gorgeous girl my age and I was like oh these older football players taking all our chicks <laughs> it's the worst like the worst anyways I don't remember the punching bag thing but I do remember that <laughs> yeah. well, I met I met my wife at the E-Bar, so we'll, we won't get into past girlfriends or anything on Did this show. Did you go to Guelph? I'm from Guelph. Born oh, no, and raised. Okay. Yeah, born Good and raised know. in Guelph. So, know. yeah, I so I spent, spent some days at uh, Doogie's and the E-Bar oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and fake IDs at the Palace and when oh, I was in high school. So. <laughs> what, was, what was the E-Bar? I forget that one. I was above the bookshelf. So like an internet cafe? It sounds like an internet cafe. Yeah, I guess not. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't popular with the uh, the college. We had crowd. apartment forty eight or something like that. And apartment fifty eight or fifty eight. Yeah, something like that. Oh. Yeah, I'm into that one. Anyway, so, anyway, back so let's, digressing let's, again. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. So University of Guelph, you're you're graduating, marketing degree. So yep. I got that yep. right. And yep. so what's the plan? What's the plan? So I thought I wanted to be a marketer because I thought that was a cool thing to do. Uh, and that's what I went to school for. So I came out, I worked at an advertising agency for two years. And, you know, it was fun. You get to work on big brands and do some cool stuff. Um, and I worked on the Budweiser Big Rig for a year. So that was like, I was a field marketing rep and that was all good fun. And then, you know, I, I quickly realized that you're basically a, like a rented mule and you get ground to the bone, making no money, um, working long hours in advertising. And so, I always find myself reading investment books, real estate investing books, and I was just like, okay, I'm out. I'm going real estate. So, yeah, I actually interviewed with a developer. Um, I actually went on monster.ca and started wow. applying nice. to, to developers and, and putting my resume out there. So, I ended up meeting with uh, a developer, and he said, you know, you're a really personal guy. I had this analyst role, but I think you'd like go crazy doing that. So he said, you should get into brokerage. At the time, like I had no idea that brokerage existed in the way it does and the opportunity. And so I just met with every major shop, um, you know, actually JJ Barnicky at the time before they actually acquired. Um, yeah, met them, met uh, Collier's, met Cushman. So, and I chose Collier's, um, 
you know, they had great training. They have a college university. It's good for young brokers to come in and have some guidance it's on online classes. So, um, anyway, jumped right into it and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Wow. Wow. And it's been how, how many years you've worked at Collier's now? Uh, 13. 13, 13 years. years now. Yeah. So <clears throat> tell us a little bit about, because uh, your skill set is quite unique. Um, I think when people, maybe some of the younger people listen to the show or outside of the industry, you know, they see Collier's, CBRE, Avison Young, JLL. It's sort of like they're big brands, they're international. But like your skill set and what your team does in particular at Collier's is quite unique. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your team, some of your partners, and you know what you guys bring to the market? Yeah. So uh, just a little precursor to that. So when I got into Collier's, I focused on office leasing because I worked at an advertising agency, and I, you know, I come over and I think, you know, what's my angle? You know, I'm just a new guy, cold calling. So I started cold calling advertising agencies and marketing companies, just saying, look, I know your business better than anyone, yada yada. So I did that for a couple years, and then. Um, I was selling a building on Camden Street, and along comes Brad Lamb, and like uh, I bought it from my client, and then he had to sell it, and Brad came along and just overpaid what I thought overpaid. That's where my curiosity with redevelopment really started because uh, he he bought it, and then he's like, let's assemble the rest of the block. I was like, okay, and then you know, putting together the numbers, looking at it and looking at density. I, I just love the complexity of it versus just, you know, billings worth X per square foot and here's a cap rate or, you know, you're an occupier. It was just challenging in terms of the planning and the numbers and how to make it all work. And so we put that together and then that was kind of where I caught the redevelopment bug. And then I, I quickly realized that a lot of unsuspecting landowners uh, didn't really understand density. And, and that's why we started uh, the urban redevelopment practice. And so probably about 10 years ago, probably was an office leasing two years. So basically went around the city just uh, working with owners and, you know, basically aligning their expertise with that of developers. So, you know, looking at things like density. Sorry, um, you're saying the, the owners align their interests with developers uh, expertise, or ex- just like the knowledge of density and value of it oh, okay um, I see. so you're lo- educating them in some ways yeah. like vendors saying hey here's what your site's worth here's why here's what someone might pay for it yeah so they'd like to set their expectations yeah exactly. i assume anyways exactly got it and then so we just kept building the team um you know we have an in-house planner we do all our underwriting in-house with our financial analysts residual land pro formas so we have that expertise um, all in-house, basically as as a developer look at a site. And so that's really how it started. And you know now we most of our clients are actually private families, you know, not real estate people. Um, you know we do represent institutions and and funds also, but most of our clients are people that aren't in the business. They own the real estate as a result of their family or, you know, used to be a textile manufacturer and they've inherited the building and they don't know what they're sitting on. And so that's where we provide the most amount of value. 
Wow. That's interesting. Um, I've been you know, doing this land insights report for the last uh, three years with uh, with Pretoria Management, and it's just it's so difficult to value a property, right? There's just so many factors that that go into what the value of any one property is. From is it a corner? Is it uh, you know what's the the income on site? What's the you know what can get built? What's the crane swing? What's the underground yeah. soil condition? It's just uh, on and on and on and on with different things you can layer on which can impact the value so I, I certainly don't uh, envy your position of trying to help some of these <laughs> clients because you know I do some of these land valuations and then two weeks later project sells for $230 per billable square foot when I said you know the site next door was 190 and I'm just like ah come on yeah <laughs> it happens right. all the time we see it we see it on the on the lending side someone ties up a site and they bring it to us and they say we're closing in I don't know 60 days and we bought it for 20 million but it's worth 25. Yeah. And as a lender you're you're sitting there saying to yourself I think the value is what you're paying for it. I mean, the market sets the value. It's like what is a willing seller willing to sell something to a willing buyer and to me that's that in some way creates the market. Mm-hmm. But, so, but only but, if but, it's if only if it was widely available and people all knew about it, right? Uh, these are widely known yeah. about sites and people buy them and then they come to me and they're like, no, nah, it's worth 30. I bought it for 20, got a steal. Give me 25 million bucks. And you're like, what? <laughs> so I'm paying you to buy this piece of dirt? Like, you nuts? <laughs> Happens, but you'd be shocked how many people, you know, think that they've just stole the land. Yeah. I'm sure you see that on both sides. Yeah, you know, for sure. And I think the biggest challenge that we have is that there's so, this market is so like it's a sophisticated market, but there's also so many agents and independent brokers that will tell vendors something, and they're not. It's not qualified in terms of you know the the rationale and valuation. And so, you're out there as a f- sophisticated representative, you know, showing the real numbers. But sometimes the vendors just say, oh well, you know, X Y Z broker told me it's worth this much. And so, it's a fine balance of you know being true to the numbers, but also, you know, the vendors always have higher expectations. So it's, you got to manage that. You know, there, there is the unknown. And I think a lot of people look at a site and underwrite it a certain way. And then some other groups will come by and underwrite it a different way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one's right and one's wrong. It's just there's two different approaches. I mean, a lot of times I see sites and uh, one group of developers may look at it as a mid-rise or low-rise, like stacks in and out four years. Another group may say, hey, we could do like a long-term play, change the official plan, get more density. We're going to look at it as a high-rise site. And there's a lot of there's a lot of medium to medium density sites that high-rise developers, like Brad in particular, going back to him, look at and say, hey, I, you know, one site that we're, we've talked to him about, he thinks he's going to get 44 stories. I mean, I mean, the average person who looked at it thought he'd be lucky to get, or anybody would be lucky to get 20. Yeah. So it happens all the time. Yeah. One thing was, was interesting when we talked with, with Scott McClellan and Plaza Corp, where they're building a long term pipeline of lands, right? So it's kind of interesting. Whereas, you know, the high density market is, had always been you buy it, you get it entitled, you bring it to market as quickly as possible, all right? But we're now seeing more players. You know, land banking in the high-rise space, which just hadn't happened until maybe the last five years. I don't know if you're seeing if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, it depends on the group, right? Some some developers just need to go right away because you know they don't have the deep pockets to, to sit on it. But yeah, and I think back to Steve's point in terms of there's you know beauties in the eye of the beholder in a lot of these sites within a certain range, and that's why you know we go to the market. We, we bring it to everyone because as a vendor, you, you don't know what it's worth uh, if you're just talking to a single source buyer. You want to see that 
eight to 15 offers in front of you. And then that's when you get context to say, okay, I know that it's worth in these range. There's always the outliers where there'll be a really low bid or really high bid. Typically those groups aren't educated enough and they typically gravitate towards the mean. So once you see that context and you kind of accept the value range. Yeah. And what kind of conditions are going into some of these deals? Anything weird? I know there's density bonuses and profit shares in the back end. Is is, is something becoming standard standard in the market these days? Um, yeah, I think it depends on the vendor because some don't want to wait around for a bonus density provision. Um, you know, some want to JV, say they want to JV, and then once you take them through that process and the timelines and risk associated with it, you know, primarily with construction costs, they kind of just say, okay, I'll take the money and run. But um, yeah, like it depends on the level of sophistication with the vendor, I'd say. If it's a private family that doesn't know anything about development, they're going to be skittish to do it. But we typically always say, you know, back to the density discussion. Well, you know, somebody told me I can get 45 stories here, but you know, the secondary plan says 30. Okay, well, let's agree on what you can get at 30. Value that, and then yeah, if they get more, if somebody's aggressive, like certain developers are, and they get more and they fight for it, then you know, we'll get you a piece of that upside. Not 100% of the density value, but maybe 50% of what they paid per buildable. Okay. Wow, 50%. Can negotiate. So. It really depends. And then you get the more sophisticated vendors that are wealthy and will say, okay, I want to be part of the LP. Just roll my money into the LP side of the deal. Okay. Interesting. Depends. Is uh, most of the landowners doing VTBs these days? What's Um, a VTB, Ben? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, vendor take back. Okay, thank you. And what does that mean? (laughs) I just feel like I don't know if everybody's going to know what a VTB is. I've tried jargon. Pardon me? It's industry jargon. Industry jargon, but you know, there, there is the uh, our listener base is really growing. Well, that's Steve. He's Steve's the expert. In what it, is it? So. I believe it stands for uh, vendor take back mortgage. And so it's not VTBM, Steve. <laughs> it's just VTB. Uh, again, I, I wouldn't say that there's a, a, an answer across the board. Sometimes it's used as a crutch to get the price up. So in a lot of our bids, we get that. Like we're in the market with the site right now, and I get all the calls, and it's. You know, will the vendor accept a VTB? And I'd say, okay, propose a price without a VTB and with a VTB. And if there's enough equity in the transaction for the vendor to be happy, and that helps them get a higher price and defers taxes, because you can defer the tax over the VTB period, um, then there's an advantage to that. But right now, in the face of potentially like rising capital gains and all that funny stuff that may happen, hopefully not. You know, you might want to not want to do a VTP because you're putting yourself into a higher tax system um, next year. Who knows? I will have to ask Mr. Trudeau what his plans are. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you haven't asked him yet, eh? <laughs> I'm gonna text him later. Steve likes to at tweet him. He thinks he listens. <laughs> it's like basically, if I tweet Adam enough. I'm sure at some point it's going to get through. Yeah, it's like it's got to sneak through. He's, he's, he's probably on the can checking his ads. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah. like Steve, what the hell? <laughs> hey, <laughs> Not this again. He's, he's a human like the rest of us. <laughs> Maybe even listens to this podcast. You never know. Yeah, yeah, I imagine he does. I imagine he does. So tell us a little bit. I think I already asked you this, but a bit more. So you've built out a team at Collier's. You've got a planner. You've got a pseudo quasi architect on your team. A couple yeah. grinders. You got Tina. Yeah, the best. we got Tina that keeps it all together. 
together. And, and Tina, look, Tina's the glue. Yeah, Collier's is a very collaborative environment. So, you know, we have 70, 80 people on our sales floor. And, you know, every we partner with everyone in our office. So, you know, when somebody, you know, a lot of young guys come into the business and, you know, they know our team's expertise, they'll, they'll bring us deals. So our, our team is massive in terms of business development. And then we're very tight on the execution with a few people um, because just there's so much knowledge as you guys know in this business and it takes years to learn all the hundred variables of a development um, and a pro forma that can go wrong. And so that kind of brain trust you need to keep close. But the business development side of things, obviously anyone can pick up a phone and, and find a good site. It's just rationalizing it and ensuring that you know, that younger broker or partner in the office isn't wasting their time. I love how sales guys are so quick to short sell themselves. Like anyone could pick up the phone and find a say. Like I, I'd actually, I, I don't think it's rocket science, but I, I tend to disagree. It, it is a skill that, you know, people have learned and you don't get, you haven't got to where you are without it. How many given deals would you guys have on the go in the GTA at any time? And how many are you chasing? Um, I would say that, you know, Typically, like there's a capacity limit, obviously, because you, know, you got to dig deep on these. And so at any time, I'd probably say 15 to 20 that we are actively either negotiating on, underwriting. There's a whole bunch more than that that we're pitching constantly. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of get to a point in this business where, you know, you want to work on exciting stuff. Um, and you want to work on stuff that is going to transact because in a 100% commission business, you got to manage your time. And so if you come up against a vendor that just doesn't want to look at the numbers and want to understand value and just is unreasonable, you can quickly suss that out and, and move on. So, you know, it's there's certain areas of the city where there's good density and good value, and we tend to focus there. Speaking of certain areas of the city, you just moved to a new area. I did. The beaches. Did. Or the, the beaches. beach. No, yes. the beaches. I, I, we were told it was the, definitely the beaches. It's not the beach. Oh, really? Yeah. Who, who because there's multiple that? beaches in the beaches. That's why it's called the beaches. Uh, they yeah. are, I thought they, you know, I live in the upper beaches. I thought it was the upper beaches and the beach. No. No, I, uh, I ran into a guy this summer named Ian. Um, <laughs> I did. I did. He's a uh, trustworthy name. His yeah. father, uh, I think, was the founder of Pizza Pizza. Great oh, guy. Yes. Were you yes. there? You might yeah. have been there. Yep. And yeah, he told yeah, us the I whole story. That. Yes. About how like the beaches was established. It was like three main beaches become became the beaches. So yeah, and he said it's the new beachers that call it the beach. Yeah, the exactly. Old, old crew calls it the beaches. So, so I, I agree I with the, beach. the beaches. To be honest, me yeah, too. There are multiple beaches. That's I was I, there was a point of me bringing this up, by the way. <laughs> um, so I think that everybody understands sort of what the AAA sites are downtown. You know, the major corners on transit. We can get into occlusionary zoning in a minute, which we will. But I think the way that the, the city's going, it's become so expensive. Obviously, there's like a bit of an affordability crisis. And it seems, it appears anyways, that vendors have picked up on this outside of, you know, the major markets. And I call I say the major markets, the major corners, even the major areas of the city. And we're looking at, you know, development in more tertiary markets. I wish that the beaches, for example, in the Danforth, I always say it would be more pro-development. Um, you know, we had a, a great uh, guy in the show two episodes ago, Brad Bradford. But you guys are now sort of picking up some sites. I think you mentioned you have a site in Scarborough you're flogging and, and some other sort of, I don't want to say secondary markets, but maybe uh, markets that weren't as hot as they, uh, they are today, a couple years ago. 
Yeah, and I mean the beach is its own unique animal, just because there is a lot of nimby's there. Yeah. Um, and what's and, a nimby? Um, <laughs> ben, can you tell us what a nimby is? So not in my backyard. Uh, typically older, white. Grumpy uh, and affluent, which is weird. Do you think you've got so much money and a beautiful house that you've owned for many years that you wouldn't be so angry about uh, someone's house coming stuffy. into your neighborhood? Yeah, yeah. stuffy. There's, yeah. yeah, there's some angry. People Actually, Steve there. Kaiser, as a side note, just introduced me to a wicked Instagram account called Yimby. What's it called? Yimby. Yes, in my backyard. Yes, in my backyard. <laughs> and it's just awesome developments all over North America in really obscure locations and cool cities as well. And just like massive developments that look gorgeous. Yeah, I'm, I follow one Instagram account that posts like new developments, and some of the coolest ones are in Tehran. I'm always like, these are amazing. What is going on? And where's on in Tehran? Tehran? <laughs> <laughs> Not in Canada. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Steve. So, I think it's so Scarborough. Um, so yeah. So to 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 just go back to beach quickly. Beach is very low rise, uh, low density. You know, four to six stories. So. You know, it's hard to make those work. So, you know, as I said earlier, we go to where the density is typically. Um, not that we won't sell a mid-rise site, but um, Scarborough's one area, um, and I'm saying this partly as a plug for this listing on Progress Avenue, you know, there's a lot of density there, and the city has to grow, and there's huge population targets, like, federally, and most of those people end up here. And so there's certain pockets, Portland's being one, um, let's call Downsview another, um, with all the redevelopment happening there with PSP, and then Scarborough Town Center, Scarborough City Center, um, there's tens of millions of square feet there in the pipeline, and there's a subway on the way. So areas like that, um, you know, Mississauga City Center is another one that's blown up. Um, that's where the majority of the growth is going to be, and I just feel that Certainly, Scarborough has a stigma for most um, most developers, but now with where prices are going downtown, you know, getting to that sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars a square foot in certain locations, um, you know, you look at Scarborough and it's you know a thousand bucks a foot, and it's kind of a value play. And now the land numbers are starting to really make sense. You know, if you're looking for a hundred bucks a buildable foot, if you can build for or sell at a thousand, you know, and you're a good developer and you know, you can value engineer the development. You're you're making really good money on a high density project. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, you know the Scarborough City Center was was hot maybe like ten years ago. You know, Stafford and Monarch and Chinese developers coming in, and then it was just like dead for like the longest time. And now, now I would say Scarborough's back. Right, it's the you Golden know? Mile too. Right, I, I think that's yeah, what called I mean, it. The Golden Mile is going to be massive. Obviously, Matt Young. He uh, we're even shouting him out a lot on this show, but he's got his big. Project at Kennedy. You've got uh, you know Trinity and Timber Creek at the Guildwood Go Train Station. I know Madison few, has a few sites out there. Yeah, as well. a few recent launches. Uh, Nahid uh, Kennedy's done really well at uh, you know mid nines and uh, I think we and, finance that. Yeah, the Perch, which is out in Highland Creek, and uh, and the project that I said <laughs> I told people was the best deal in the entire GTA is Icor Developments. It was like eight ninety a foot, like literally right beside uh, where you know real close to where your listing is. Right. right. So, right. Um, so interesting that you know it was kind of under the radar type of uh, type of project. So yeah, I think yeah, I mean Scarborough has so much legs. I mean, I, I just it blows my mind that people are buying projects in Curtis and Bowmanville <laughs> at eight hundred bucks a foot, right? When you it just makes so in much Kingston. more sense to be you know close to a go train station, which is you know. 20 minutes you can be on the it go and be in downtown it's Toronto. Such a good point. All right, it blows my mind too, actually, and I, I can't get over it. 
but I mean, as far out as Kitchener Waterloo, all the way basically to Kingston, I so there's a developer right now selling for nine fifty a foot in Kingston, Ontario. <laughs> Like yeah. nine fifty a foot to live in Kingston. <laughs> yeah. So crazy. like, what does that mean, Mississauga's worth? Like that means Mississauga's got to be worth like fourteen hundred bucks a foot. Oh. Yeah. 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 And you know maybe that's partially driven by the student rental thing, but you know I think as you look at the downtown and there's just less and less sites available. Um, you know, in the next ten years, like my job is going to consist downtown of putting land assemblies together, and that those are very hard. They take a very long time. Mm-hmm. The developers need to keep their motors running. They're going to need to go outside of the core and outside of downtown, where before it was perceived as risky because they didn't know what your revenues are going to be. But now, as, as it pushes out, you start to see the go go train stations um, come to life with a lot of density, like in the Keel and St. Clair area. There's tons going on there. I just think that you're going to see developers have to go outside of the core, and um, it's just going to you know, value is going to be there and it's going to make more and more sense as the years go on. Yeah. I, I, I found it interesting. I was, you know, had a conversation with Shemez maybe five or six years ago, Shemez Varani from Center Court. And uh, he said, yeah, I don't think we'd ever go north of St. Clair. <laughs> you know, they're what, building five in yeah. the Mon Corporate yeah. Center, right? So yeah, exactly. I think uh, things certainly change in terms of uh, in terms of people's perception of, of the GTA and you know, a project just launched in the Mississauga City Center at 1200 bucks a foot. Well, that's what I'm right. saying. Like, like if, if we're going to 950 in Kingston mind. in a few years, it's not going to be yeah. far off from the $1,400 mark. And yeah. for an investor perspective, right, the deposits are smaller, right? You're paying 1000 bucks a square foot for 500 square feet versus 1700 downtown. And, yeah. you know, for retail investors, it's a smaller entry point. And if you believe in the story of Toronto, that you're going to do okay. Yeah. I, I did notice that you have a number of in your a number of transactions in your recent transactions that are, you know, power of sale or receivership sales. What do you think is happening there? Do you, you think it's just, you know, guys getting in over their head, everyone thinks they're a developer? Or what do you think, you know, you've had, yeah. you had a few of those. What do you think? The, is there a common theme among what you're seeing there on that side of it? Yeah, it's, it is getting over your head and not understanding the planning or you, a lack of experience, I'd say. Um, you know, there's certain large developers that you won't name that have gotten into trouble recently uh, downtown along Young Street. Um, <laughs> but again, that's that's getting over over your skis or however you want to put it, right? Like too many projects, um, you know, revenues may be there, but your cost side is super inflated. And I think it's just, you know, mismanaging the timing, whether you sell units too early or, you know, you don't factor in a large component of the project, which, you know, you have to do transfer slabs and all like high, high, high rise construction, you can get burnt and, and low rise, you can get burnt. It's that obviously that medium 30 to 40 stories is the most efficient. Um, but, I think it just comes down to yeah, lack of experience, running out of capital, but it's not, you know, it's not something that should be prevalent in our market the way revenues have been. Yeah, yeah, they've <laughs> saved a lot of people, that's for yeah, sure. Exactly. I guess I had a qu- another question about uh, when you're advising a uh, a vendor on a developer buying. Or do you, do you do you you know how much are you saying? Yeah, you know maybe not that guy. <laughs> I'm not sure if that guy's going to close. Is, is yeah, that t- is that a part of your business? Are they oh, are they absolutely. constantly asking you about that? Stuff? You wouldn't believe on our bids. Like the, sometimes the people that show up and they show up regularly, and you're just like we're, like you know we've had deals where you know we sold the Silverstein site on McCall, um, great site right behind University Row or Hospital Row, I should say. And we had a guy that came in, put in a firm bid. It was the highest bid. And then 
you know, it was a million dollar deposit and he never showed up with a million bucks. <laughs> wow. So you know, luckily we had about 15 other bids and we went to the next buyer, but you know, in that that guy still calls me on all these deals. And I'm like, look, I'm not, we're not going to do a deal. So, um, huge part what of does our he say? Sorry. What does he say when you're like, you stiffed us, you walked on your million buck. I was like, Oh, I would have had it the second, like two days later. And you guys didn't give me enough time. And it's like, well, you know, time is money. And you know, that's our value is that, you know, you don't want to get in a lot of these vendors, people approach them, as I said, they're not in the business, so they don't know the names, right? They don't know who people are. So part of our value is saying, you know, we know that group, you know, to your point, they close. They're going to close. They've never, in a deal previously, they've never screwed around with us, they're always forthcoming. And then there's the groups that you know that are just trying to tie it up, don't really have the money, looking to syndicate, or they're just, you know, like this guy was saying on McCall. So, Absolutely, you know that's part of our guidance to the clients is you know who you're dealing with, um, and sometimes you know sites that we've sold, we haven't taken the highest number, but we've taken the the person that we trust. That was going to be my next question. Like, how how often are you not taking the most money, but you're taking the 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 solid deal? Well, a lot of the times, you know, in certain transactions, when there's enough pre due diligence and when the vendor you know, listens to us and they do environmentals, yeah. they do all the planning work, updated surveys, you know, it costs money. It costs probably 75 grand for a vendor to do a full DD before you go to the market. So you can get firm bids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you do take the firm bid that's, you know, a little less, 3% less. Sometimes right. you do, um, versus the conditional bid that's higher from somebody who, you know, doesn't have a sterling reputation. Have you have you experienced the expectations of vendors and buyers becoming further and further apart over the last few years, or or do you feel that there has become more alignment? I mean, I think that our market is very sophisticated. And 10, 10 15 years ago, when I was out there, um, you know, doing this, there wasn't as much noise or as many podcasts at the time, <laughs> educating people. Should but I think you just, uh, you know, as any market matures in any sector, right? It's just, there's more people on it. It's the main driving force behind the Toronto economy. You know, you say tech also and in the financial sector, but hey, those just, guys in tech got to live somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly. They have a lot of money. So anyway, with any market maturing as as ours has, you have a lot of people calling and cold calling and giving information, some of which is not good. But you know, most of the time, any vendor can call a couple people, a lawyer, and figure out pretty quickly where things are. So, but <laughs> there's, with that being said, there's always the you know just because valuations where vendors just say, look, I have three sisters and each of us need ten million dollars to live, so I, that's why I want forty million bucks, and so. <laughs> So sometimes, uh, you know, it just doesn't doesn't make sense, and the vendor's a way out to launch. But that that always works its way out. You just have to give it time, and and enough people tell them the reality of it, or you run a sales process, and they either accept it or, or they don't. Yeah. Well, I, I got. I mean, I'm on the revenue side, obviously, and that's you know the the the, the side of the business that I operate on, and and. You know, we've been discussing the, you know, the rapid increase in pricing for you know ten, maybe fifteen years. Uh, are, are you doing a lot of you know advising your clients, or are they, you know, are they building in when they buy a site and they think it's going to take them, 
you know, three years to get it approved. Are they building in 15% buffer on today's revenue? Are they building in 20%, 30%? Like, what kind of numbers are they building into their pro formas? Um, you know, we, a lot of the times they don't share their pro formas with us, <laughs> um, you know, because everyone has their own secret sauce, like Steve said, and everyone will underwrite it a little bit differently. You know, when we, we underwrite sites, um, you know, there's there's a typical range, you know, whether you look at Altis or, you know, Collier's Project Leaders, which is a division of Collier's, um, you know, we track costs pretty closely and, you know, there's always a range. So, when we look at these pro formas, there's, as I said, you know, 50 to 100 dials you can turn, right? And the big ones are revenue, you know, above grade hard costs, um, you know, whether it's zoned or unzoned, you know, that, that's good. Those costs are kind of known. But, you know, we when we turn out a pro forma, we typically do a 15 to 20% return on costs. And then, you know, obviously you layer on your cost of capital um, over and above that. Um, but, you know, some developers may look at an unzoned site and say, well, I'm going to underwrite to 30% return on cost because it's unzoned and I don't know what I'm going to run up against. But then you have the groups that are the machines and would take a much lower margin and just know what they can do, stay within those lanes and, and churn through it and take a lower yield maybe on the development. But obviously, you know, gain the development management fees and construction management fees are vertically integrated and they need to keep the machine running. So, yeah, every every project's different, but I would say that, you know, there's certainly a buffer that, that we always um, appreciate on the construction cost side that, you know, one may write into it. And you talk to anyone and, you know, some would say, oh, well, you know, hard costs are up to $400 a square foot now. And, you know, others would say, oh, it's 350 And so it really depends on that developer's experience at that time with the project that they're they're dealing with because that's the only real measure of construction costs is what are you tendering right now and some would say oh it's 400 because you have a very complicated mid-rise building where some other high-rise developers that have projects underway or you know they're above grade hard costs are at 275 blended they're closer to 350 so Again, we, we always sensitize it, and we're always open to hearing developers squabble about you know their recent experiences, and they'll just have a different view on value. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I mean, I just I continue to be shocked at the the growth in in valuations in our, in our market, and just wonder because you know as we know the market is dominated by investors, and investors want to eventually sell these units to end users. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for a profit. Paying, yeah, <laughs> and if someone's paying $1,600 per square foot today for 400 square feet, I just wonder who's going to buy that from them in the future, if people will have the money to, to take those units off their hands, especially when... You know, rents just went down 23%. percent <laughs> coming back very, very yeah, quickly. They've come back they're really quickly. Yeah. They're coming yeah. back so hot and heavy. Uh, from the rentals.ca report. <laughs> rentals.ca. Uh, uh, from, from March. Wait, you know, condo rents are up from February to, to August by 15%. So, yeah, so it's right. been a pretty pretty sharp comeback in, uh, in, in that space. Yeah, I think rents are going to continue to grow. And you see developers, you know, on the rental, purpose-built rental side getting very good. Um, you know, Fitzrovia, for example, and the amenities they build in these buildings and the quality. Um, there's going to be a flight to quality post-COVID, for sure, to buildings that are new and have amenities. I know um, that a couple of buildings that 
Adrian's building are, are starting to finish and he's doing very well in the lease up. And I think, you know, you live in an old apartment building, you pay a slight premium to be in a new building. And I think you're going to see that flight to quality on the rental side, on the stats as these new projects get delivered. And there's a wave of them, as you yeah. know. The Waverly is a you know beautiful project, the amount of yeah. amenities he has going on there. And yeah, it's just a, yeah, a fantastic. It would be hot. If I was divorced, I would uh, definitely live in the Waverly. <laughs> <laughs> definitely your demographic at 44 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Lots of uh, eye candy, if they will. So let's, let's uh, switch t- topics for a second here. I just want to get into uh, a bit of uh, inclusionary zoning. Whoa. Sitting oh, outside. <laughs> we got the elements, got the birds, the bees, and the, the horns. Um, apologize for those background sounds. Uh, but anyway, Steve, we talked a little bit before about um, not only inclusionary zoning and in particular, you know, I guess, you know, you had mentioned to me the window is closing. Mm-hmm. So I think what you mean by that is the window is closing to get your applications in yep. under the old system. I believe they extended the deadline from the end of December till the end of March. Um, July is what I'm hearing now. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's July, July 2022. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, really... You know, how does that affect the the you know current value of lands and the future value of lands, and and what are you seeing out there from uh, that perspective? Yeah, it seems to be the topic of the day. It's the hot topic. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, a lot of the sites that we're dealing with right now, um, you know, the vendors are aware of it, and it it is finally you know, coming to fruition in terms of decision making. You know, there's a there's a bunch vendors of vendors in denial of the impact this is gonna have on their I sites. Think they were in denial earlier this year, but it's it's coming to roost now because there's there's owners that I've been talking to for twelve years that, you know, would always say, No, nope, not selling, not selling and all of a sudden they're very active and they're right. proactive and looking to to either get in on a zoning application or you know, sell. So an application takes four to six months and it also has to go to the city. Then you have to wait for the city. And that that's what everyone does. Every developer you talk to, it's, you know, I'm waiting on the city. Like city legal hasn't signed this or traffic hasn't signed off and it's been with them for a year. So the city is going to have to actually say that your application is deemed complete and that might not happen for a couple months. So if you're a developer, you probably want to have your application in by March, April, if July is the date, just so they can deem it complete. And it's you know pre-July. So if you work backwards four to six months, like that's November, right? To uh, to know that you have a deal and that you're putting an application in. So yeah, so there's a, there's a few deals right now that will likely be launching in the next few weeks where you know we need to get a transaction done before. November, December, in order to meet that. So, but to your point, I think you fast forward to July, August of next year. And if you have a site that's zoned or in the zoning process and it's grandfathered, it's going to be the same effect as when the OMB was abolished and all of a sudden zone sites shot up in value relative to unzoned. And then it kind of almost balanced back out when LPAT was reintroduced. But you're going to see, you know, an example that you and I talked about a site downtown, 400,000 square feet that we're looking at. If you put, I've seen even 20% inclusionary zoning in the core, perhaps in, in some areas, maybe even 30, they're testing just the marketability of that and the pro forma. And so if you take away 20% of a 400,000 square foot building, you know, that's 80,000 square feet of GFA, you're selling the affordable units at, I mean, you put the rent in, the cap rate, it's 400 to 450 a square foot. 
and you could sell those units at fourteen fifty. So a thousand bucks per square foot on eighty thousand square feet is eighty million dollars. Wow. So you remove that from a, from a pro forma, that's like well beyond any revenue that a developer would ever expect. So they're going to go back to the landowner and say, look, th- these are the numbers. And you know the landowner, land prices are sticky, they're inelastic to these changes. So it's going to take some time for that to work through the system, where you know most people you talk to in the city of Toronto that haven't sold already don't need to sell. But I think at that point, they're going to either need to you know, come to the realization that their land has gone down in price, or they'll just wait for it to work through <laughs> three to five years when revenue catches up. But there is going to be a slowdown over the next 12 to 18 months, I'd say, um, in the pipeline, because they need to digest what's happening yeah. as landowners. Yeah, I find that, you know, you hear these landowners who had a site that uh, didn't close, and then the market went down a bit, and then they just they just stuck to that price. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like yeah. two years later <laughs> before they uh, got back to that that price. So we haven't had too many of those in, but you know I'm just thinking back to 2008, 2009, where things kind of cooled down in the land market for a while. But uh, yeah, I mean it's it's unfortunate because everyone wants more affordable housing units built in our city, and uh, it just can't. You know, the burden can't fall 100% on the development development industry to provide them. It's just uh, a lack of leadership in our in our city to uh, to collect funds to to build affordable housing, right? And uh, I mean, it's just you just need to look at these housing now sites and, yeah. <laughs> and to see no, the, say that. the process that it's gone through to uh, you know to, to 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 get anything even approved, right? You know, like uh, near me, near the Warden Subway Station, and even that one was contentious. And there's no houses that that these buildings are even going to shadow on and uh, and people are like well that many affordable units it's gonna be a ghetto right you know and it's not you know and these are these are not even the old white angry nimbies these are just like uh, you know young people and you just I'm just so surprised that people can't make the connection between like high prices and high rents and not having enough supply right and uh, I think the you know what's happening in the car market right now is a perfect example, right? These has this chip shortage, so we can't people can't get a new car. I'm getting a van. I've moved. I'm becoming a You're van. Getting a van? You're I'm officially getting a van. dad. I'm Come yeah. on. I'm yeah, holding I off. I'm holding off. Eventually, are you gonna get like the like the two sliding doors, one on each side, or are yeah. they still like are the caravans? Both, both sides. Both wow. sides. It's called wow. a Kia Carnival. Oh wow! Uh, a carnival, yeah. a carnival. It's a new yeah. model. And I haven't so, heard of that one. I hope it's you're getting. Like, I hope it's going to be electric red. It's uh, <laughs> better be. Yeah. I'll be upset if it's I, anything else. I wanted to get. They had this actually an electric orange interior, but you had <laughs> that to wait been, that, that. that was going to take like six months to get. So, anyways, this model that I got is only four months to get. So basically, wow. people are going because they can't buy anything new. They're forced to go into the to the the secondary market. You know, and most, the I thought people of, in the upper beaches just rode bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. If I tell Brad Bradford about this, he's furious. <laughs> yeah, no, I. Uh, it's too dangerous to ride a bike in this city. Oh, we we, we discussed that. We yeah. discussed if you ever pocket. end up with the Waverly, you got to get rid of the van. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the van. I don't know, honey. I mean, you can keep the house and the van. I'm I going think, to the Waverly. I think there's you know some women that are into dad bods and vans. I mean, that's like <laughs> I, I've heard dad bods about dad vans. I don't know. That's where, where it may stop. You know, it's rec- reclining seats in the back. It's, you know, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Anyways, you got to but you know, just to get on the point, I mean, he's driving up the value of 
the of the secondary market for cars, right? Yeah, and people yeah. kind of can figure that out, but they can't seem to figure that out when it comes to new housing. You need new housing, yeah. uh, so the people that are that are affluent that can buy that new housing are not in the existing housing, right? So, and I don't know how many times you have to say that to some people, but they just they just can't can't figure Steve, it out. Steve, right? going back to your example about you know like okay, I, I hear you, Ben. You know this is going to drive up pricing. There's a theory that these new condos that are going to be built you're going to have 20 30% have to be affordable housing so you're going to sell those at 450 the market's 1450 you have to make up the delta somewhere else do they take the thousand dollars a foot and spread it all over all the the non-affordable housing units and therefore driving the end unit price for everything else because i mean when you think about it if there's only a set amount of supply the only way to make that pro forma work is to drive those prices to 2500 bucks a foot. Yeah, I think that that's what we're hearing. Um, you know, it's either land's going to get discounted or revenue is going to keep going up. And as we've seen, as we discussed earlier, over the last 10 years, revenue has saved a lot of people and a lot of projects. So, if so the government up, is banking <laughs> on all these landowners discounting their price. Uh, that, that sounds like the bet that they're making, if you, I, if you it put sounds it that like way. It, if, if you think that they, they want supply or inventory in the short term, that's what they think should happen, or that that's what needs to happen. But I think we've been pushing and pushing revenue, and even during the pandemic, revenue has risen quite a bit. And so it's a question of... You know, certain developers have really good marketing teams, and you know they actually market for other developers. And those are the groups that you know we're in touch with. And you know, some of them are really good, and some of them may think that they can get that additional revenue. But again, it's going to be deve- developer uh, dependent, and right away everything's sticky. Like revenue is going to be sticky for. 12 to 24 months as our land prices. So I think you're going to see, unfortunately for <laughs> for guys like me, I think you're going to see transactions go down a little bit, but it's good. It's, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon people like me in the industry to educate vendors and get them to that transaction sooner. So hopefully single-handedly I can help. So speaking of education, um, Kristen Wong Tam tweeted something that she wanted to educate the city on. And the tweet was, <clears throat> and I quote, Here's another way to end the housing crisis, and it's a quote from an article in Berlin. It says, instead of building more homes to combat rising rents, Berliners opt for expropriating some 240,000 units of existing private housing. And the title of the article is, Berliners endorse creative new housing affordability plan, steal buildings from the private. (laughs) (laughs) She literally tweeted that. I'm not even kidding. Are you serious? That is dead-ass serious. It's, it's interesting. You see these uh, the same people that go and say, you know, we don't want vaccines. The government is getting too much into our business. They like this plan. They like the government going out and buying everyone's houses and giving it to them for cheap. All right. Yeah. And I'm like, you want your gov- you want the government as your landlord, right? Like, ah, uh, that's kind of in your business. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I I believe that obviously you know the provincial government. You know the, what they're doing is is great in terms of transit, and you know they're they're expropriating lands around these transit hubs that are coming, uh, like on the Ontario line. That's and so true. It's they did it all across Eglinton too. Yeah, well, it's it's encouraging to see that for for a couple of reasons. One, because you know the province I think gets density and gets that it has to go around transit. So. I feel like that's that's a positive, um, you know. And also, the city's doing like the Housing Now initiative, where you know we've represented CreateTO on on some deals, and traditionally they just sell the land and they go to the private sector. And so, yeah, they can control the development. I know that there's zoning, 
you know, millions of square feet on sites that they own, you know, in and around uh, uh, Don Mills and Eglinton, and then out at Six Points in, in Etobicoke. So they're, I mean, it's on their land. They should, if they want it, they, they can value engineer it and get it zoned, and there's just going to be a price discount to build it. Will it be attractive enough developers? We'll see. But to put all that uh, inclusionary zoning into the private sector and expect immediate results, it's not going to happen. It's going to create the opposite effect. And I don't think they, they really realize that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's kind of odd. but Yeah, no, I mean, it's the biggest frustration with the public sector or the government making these policies. And you just read them or you watch them roll it out. And you're like, do you not realize that this literally is going to have the reverse effect of what you're trying to, of the problem which you're trying to correct, and um, I think that's a lot of our frustration in this business, right? Yeah. Just sort there's, of there's a the lot weeds. of progressives in in uh, in the industry. And it doesn't matter what it is, where they expect private industry to take less of a return. I mean, it's just not the way that it works, right? Rather no. you're well, I'm you're, in the banking business. You're when you're in the banking business, you you. I mean, I've said this a million times. Like you, when you underwrite a deal, you have to have a certain level of profits. Like not there's no if ands or buts about it. Like you must have a healthy project in order to get financing. So anyone who has this idea that developers should take less profit does does not really understand how yeah, finance works. It's an extremely <laughs> risky business. Financial institutions <laughs> don't finance unhealthy projects. Like full stop. Yeah. Like yeah. there's nothing else to say about it. So what anyone if who's the like, oh yeah take says, well, I'd like to be nice and charge less for the units. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. That it, 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 it doesn't lost, happen. It's yeah. lost on the politicians that you know the timelines. I think and the risk associated with it. And you know, it just if you're taking your profit a week later, then you know, could you dig in if there's more certainty and you know developers made less? Yeah, but the amount of risk that's taken on uh, on the construction side and on the revenue side and on the planning side. You, know, you should get rewarded for for that level of risk and mm-hmm. for putting your capital to work for you know seven years. Yeah, absolutely, um, as Dustin having... Johnson said the other day, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you guys see that? I didn't yeah. see that. They, they asked him if they, th- if they after they won the Ryder Cup if if he could uh, being the oldest guy on the team if he could keep up with the young guys partying. Yeah. He just looks her in the eye. He's like, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. That was great. Well, speaking of risks, I, we do want to ask you about the, the side hustle. The side you, hustle. Yeah. You're in the drink business. Are you still in the drink business? Has that been a successful side hustle? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, everyone needs a side hustle. And, um, mine, mine was in booze and it, it kind of <laughs> happened organically. And so I, uh, you know, big party guy, I shouldn't say big party guy in Guelph. I played on the football team. We drank lots, dollar beer nights, you know, tap keg beer, um, drinking for years. I finally realized it just wasn't for me anymore, digestive wise. And I, I love that we're going into this. Wasn't expecting it, but this is great. So this is, this is the only reason we had you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone likes talking booze. Yeah, we want you to Sonics. So I. Uh, yeah, I started drinking vodka sodas. It agreed with it a little bit better. And then I got into Hendrix Gin, and uh, a buddy of mine you know, said, hey, have you ever had a gin and Sonic? And it's a gin with, with tonic, but cut with soda. And so it's a lot less sugar. He's diabetic. Um, 
And so I was like, no, let's, let's give it a try. And so for like three years straight, I drank Hendrix gin with half soda, half tonic, and it was great. Minimal hangover, you know, clear liquid. wasn't like that tart. Like I used to drink rum and Cokes all the time, but you like, you look at it and you're like, geez, that's a hangover in a glass. And so I always wake up feeling fresh after my gin and Sonics. And so neighbor of mine in in the well, I used to live in the upper beach um he's an intellectual property lawyer and I said can I trademark gin and sonic and he's like well let's look let's see if it's taken so I ended up applying for a trademark getting it in Canada in the UK uh the US I got approval but we're still battling on the trademark um Sonic restaurants appealed my trademark in the U.S. Oh wow! Um, but yeah, we launched in the Des LCBO. Doesn't like that. Des is upset. <laughs> about. Des. Thanks, Des. Des always has my back. Oh yeah. Um, so we launched in the LCBO in 2020, in the mid-pandemic, which was a complete disaster. You know, as a new brand, you know, we were going to do sampling, go to events. Um, we we're supposed to do sampling in the LCBO. You know, working with the LCBO, like. I don't know if I can say this, but I'm saying it. <laughs> it was it was a bit hectic um, in terms of inventory. It was a nightmare. It was, it was a freaking nightmare. So, I mean, it, it, government should not run that business. I know it's a big revenue generator, and in times like this for healthcare, but it it was not a fun experience. Um, you know, you're investing your money, and you know, your private sector, and you're taking a lot of risk. Back to that discussion. You know, you want to be dealing in an environment that is conducive to business and with entrepreneurs that understand to cut the red tape. But and not um, just promote the big guy all the time. That's you yeah. Know. It, it, it was it was a fun ride. Like I brought in people that were from that industry. You know, real estate's my game. So, um, but but it was a fun side project, and uh, I still drink it. You know, I still have a bunch. <laughs> but I was going to say we should have some out right now. We got. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sound man Ed taking photos. He he, he doubles yeah. down as, as a bit of everything. And the yeah, fact yeah. we don't have a bunch of gin and sonics on the table right now yeah. is uh, that's that's my fault. I apologize. No, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. We're, we're cleansing anyway. Oh, yeah, we're on a yeah. cleanse. Why don't you tell everyone about our cleanse? <laughs> Steve, Steve and I joined a workout program called the Inner Circle, and it requires no booze for two weeks. Two weeks, but at your option, eight weeks. So here we go. Let's see if we can do this, Steve. I'm starting. I'm starting. <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> so, so, so the gin and Sonic business, it did not take off like well, you wanted it to. So I own the trademark. It People love it. That's the thing is everyone that drinks it, they're like, how can I get more? And I'm like, well, go to your local LCBO and ask for it and tell them they should get it back. Um, most uh, brands that I hear of um, in the LCBO that have been successful have actually launched outside of Ontario. And you think of Neutral or White Claw or Nude or some of the new ones. And, you know, Alberta and BC, Alberta's completely privatized their system out there. So you work with a distributor and they make sure you're in and on shelf and have a presence and BC's half private. So a lot of the brands are successful out there because it's private. And so, you know, we may relaunch in the LCBO. I hope we can. It's an immediate distribution network to 14 million people. And they handle all the, the shipping and receiving and distribution. It's a great system for that. But in terms of the working with them, it's definitely challenging. They don't really talk to you. You never know when your next order is coming. And, you know, they don't really, their supply chain was a little bit 
odd. So we're gonna we're gonna relaunch it at some point. But you know, in order to take on that risk, back to that discussion, you want to be somewhere where it's friendly to the private sector. So that that may be Alberta, it may be the UK, it may be the US. But right now, I'm taking a little hiatus and, uh, <laughs> and realizing that it, it does take up a lot of time. And you know, real estate's my passion. And uh, you know, if some rich guy wants to come in and buy the trademark or invest in it, we'll find people to run it. But it, it was a shout fun experience. Out, shout actually. out to the venture capitalist that yeah, uh, listened go. to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> Some rich guy. <laughs> you are the rich guy, Steve. <laughs> so we're nearing our, our hour mark, and I know yeah. we're sensitive to time because you have uh, daycare pickup. <laughs> so I, I don't want to go too much longer. We usually like to end these shows with a, uh, with a rapid fire. Which do we, do we want to use the rapid fire from the previous yeah, yeah, uh, I think, I the think, previous guest? Yeah, so I so it Steve, out. you know, filled in graciously on a couple hours notice when our our, our scheduled guest's flight got canceled out of uh, Alberta this morning, so was he was not choice. able to. Uh, <laughs> it was the second choice. Not no, able you, to you were make on it. The, you were on the dock. It just not until the, the baby had to be whatever. We thought three months yeah, was a yeah, good time yeah, to invite you. Like, not three days. Yeah, we didn't even want you to be sleep deprived when we got you in here. So appreciate it. So anyways, we go through a couple questions here. Uh, trying to keep it to five words or less. Oh, wow. You know, if you just want to say yes or no, will banning foreign buyers make any difference in what the average buyer pays for a home in Toronto? No. One word answer. Perfect. You read the second question, Ben. Yeah, because the first one, we kind of discussed that a little bit in the, in the body. Yeah, we, 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 body we already answered the question, yeah. what do you like better, trappers or the palace? <laughs> that was question one. So yeah, let's move on to number three. Are you opposed to large institutional companies buying up single-family homes for rental purposes? I'm not, I'm not opposed to. I think it's a good thesis, generally, in a, in a inventory-deprived, low-rise market. I think it's a great strategy. That was longer than five That's minutes. okay. So, all right. Do you think we'll see a higher share of rental buildings in the next couple of years, or, or has COVID damaged too many pro formas? Specifically purpose-built rental? Purpose-built rental, yeah. Uh, I think you're going to see more and more of it, because the economics now make sense. You have a lot of pension funds that are behind it with a lot of capital and a lot of cheap capital. So I think that in certain down markets, like COVID was, you had rental developers still able to pay the price because it's long term. And I think there's just a lot of land that pension funds own that they're going to activate. So I think that you're going to see that pipeline continue to grow. Interesting. Is Scarborough the new Etobicoke? (laughs) They both end with an O. (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) Neither of them end with an O. O sound. (laughs) Etobicoke. Or Scarborough. <laughs> All right. Well, we well, 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 that's a dumb question. Uh, yeah. I, I wrote that one. I wrote <laughs> I, that I, one just to let I you know. I thought it'd be funny. I thought it was uh, good. I like my answer either. Should the Bank of Canada raise the overnight rate? Ooh. Um, I think that this question is is very important. I think that the Bank of Canada should be skittish about raising interest rates at all, because during COVID, a lot of people took on extra debt that was backed by their real estate, you know, line of credit or taking advantage of a home equity loan. You know, I think that that's kind of propped up the economy. And if you raise the interest rates, you know, you get people with now more higher mortgage payments, but also line of credit because line of credits are typically floating. And so I think that they have to be very sensitive to raising interest rates at all 
for years. I think that they're targeting maybe late 2022, early 23, but I think that our, our economy is too real estate dependent and it will, it will put us in a downward spiral if you start to see you know, interest rates go up significantly. It's just we can't afford it. Our economy is too reliant on real estate. Are you worried about inflation given the outcome of the no, I last think election? Inflation, I think inflation is just a buzzword right now because people like talking about stuff. And I think inflation is short term because of the supply chain. I'm not an economist whatsoever. <laughs> I could be completely wrong. No, listen, it's, it is, I think it is a buzzword in, in one respect because I think everyone is talking about it. But I don't know. I mean, the target has been the target for inflation has been two percent, and we've been under two percent for so many years. So know, to have well, one year, or one year or two years above two percent, I don't think that's that big of a deal. It's just you know, people. I'm paying more for groceries. You know, I yeah. pay too much at the gas pump. You know, they get upset about a few things going up a lot, but you know, I think it's I think it's only temporary. I, I know so. you voted uh, PPC, but is there if you had to pick one liberal platform that you liked, could you pick one? You're not supposed to talk about politics. Oh, <laughs> sorry. One liberal platform. Do you know what? Um, I actually said this to somebody the other day. That I think up. that there's things that I disagree with federally with the liberals. You know, one is tax and spending. Um, but immigration is so important for real estate in Toronto. And I think the combination of that component of the federal liberals combined with a progressive conservative government in Ontario is a recipe for real estate, a great recipe for real estate, because if the f- provincial government has the right policy in place and we continue to get good immigration, uh, that's that's fuel for the fire for our industry. And so immigration is one that I agree with. This this question was, was aimed at our last guest, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Is Montreal cooler than Toronto? Ooh. I'd say yes. Wow. I, really? For Montreal. I, I think that there is, I, I just been so, to so many good restaurants there. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's, I think it's the only other cool Canadian city. My wife's from near there, and I know a lot of people there. So, I don't know. Every time I go, I just had fun. I had my bachelor party there. You know, nice. 12 years ago at the F1 race, we rented a an RV, wow. and 15 of my friends and I barreled down the 401, and uh, surprising we made it there. But um, anyway, I have some good memories of Montreal, and every time I go there, I eat at an amazing restaurant, and uh, I think it's a beautiful city. Last question: Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? <laughs> I would rather fight one horse-sized duck. <laughs> wow. Because I think I could outrun them. It. That is not a fight, but... <laughs> <laughs> good answer, nonetheless. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. A, uh, where, where, where can they find you? Where can yeah, people ben, find you if Ben's they want to contact? You know, I'm sure lots of people have uh, land to sell, and now that you've said that they better sell it before inclusionary zoning comes in, where do they uh, where do they find you? Uh, they can Google uh, Google me. I've Google never me. said that before. But no, I, at Colliers.com, uh, Steve Kaiser, um, K-E-Y-Z-E-R. I don't want to give up my cell phone number because, you know, I don't want my phone blowing up. Don't do that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Steve.Kaiser at Colliers.com. And, 
you can find me. And talk, t- tell us a little bit quickly about uh, your your talks, Terra Talks. If anyone wants to read your reports, you guys do yeah. Toronto Urban Re- Redevelopment Redevelopment Advisory. Yeah. Advisory, so, got so it. We, you can look up on Instagram too. They have a cool Instagram page, thank right? You. Yep. So we, yeah. So we typically do in a non-pandemic year. Uh, we have about a hundred people to our office, and we do what's called Turo Talks, Toronto Urban Redevelopment Advisory, and we overview the market. We update people on stats. We get all the development community together, along with a lot of vendors, and just educate them. And so we're always putting out research. And so yeah, if you follow our Instagram page or um, my profile on Collars.com, we're typically posting those things, and there's some good information there. Awesome. Well, we thank you again for uh, filling in on v- extremely short notice. Uh, I'm yeah. happy to be the option number two. <laughs> for you guys, it's Thanks. still a Stop compliment. saying that. Well, You're making you know, feel I mean, bad. It's, uh, I, I appreciate it. Even though we d- I did tweet that we needed a guest, and uh, and a PR firm reached out was going to try to get us a guest on short, short really? notice. So That's great. People want to be on the Toronto Under Construction Podcast. I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> Listen, Steve, I think I've made it. I think this is like the litmus test yeah, now yeah, in this industry. When you post this on your social media, you have basically made it. <laughs> your followers are going to skyrocket. Like, I've gone literally from probably 400 Twitter followers to like 412. I'm like a big deal on there. People retweet me every once a quarter, maybe. I I don't know. I hate Twitter, Ben. I really yeah, do. Twitter is I gotta, I just, uh, it's just like a, it's a cesspool. It's a nasty place. Yeah. My, my my best tweet is when I posted a photo of Lourdes Guriel and the uh, and the trainer uh, and beside a picture of Bunsen Honeydew uh, because they looked exactly <laughs> I don't know, I the same. People. Yeah, from the Muppets. Oh, yeah, that was like of, of, of uh, you know eleven years on Twitter. That's my most retweeted. Tweet. Really? Nothing related to real estate. Oh. Just uh, Bunsen Honeydew. Good meme will get you there. Speaking of Twitter, and not to uh, not to end on a somber note, but. I did have a friend on Twitter that I like to tweet about all the time. His name was Morgan Jake, and I yes. think you know about him. And he passed away in a cycling accident last week. He was 41, I think. He had a little 40, boy. Yeah, and 44, I think. 44. He was the same age as same age as me. So yeah, yeah was, so there's a GoFundMe page to, to yeah. raise money for a scholarship in his name. And I I can't I pronounce his last name, but if you search Mortgage Jake on Twitter, uh, or even Mortgage Jake in Google, you could look it up. The story. It's it's extremely sad. He was a great personality. Had a lot to offer. His clients were obviously uh, big fans of his, and he was passionate about what yeah. he uh, what he did. So yeah, so I I, I hope people that are listening will we'll check you know, even a well. small donation is great. To, Absolutely, to, you know, to future future mortgage brokers. It's not something that people you know typically. Yeah, it's a job that you uh, that we all need, right? And yeah. it's just not something that's you know typically high on someone's uh, radar of a of a career. But I think it's a it's a rewarding career to help people into home ownership, right? So definitely. Anyways, thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. It's no an problem. honor. Thank you. Thank you.